Open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and tonight, again, we'll consider verses 14 and 15. These two verses are so absolutely critical, not just for our understanding of chapter 2, not just for our understanding of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but, but this particular uh, portion of Ephesians is so absolutely critical to our spiritual life, not just individually, but our spiritual life as a church and corporately, that I wanted to just clean that box take just a, another quick look at these verses, and they're important um, to our spiritual life, to the life of our church, before I headed out anywhere. I, I'm not going to get quite as far as I wanted to before I head out on this trip, but that's okay. Lord willing, we'll pick it up when I get back, and, uh, and we, we'll be able to finish it up and go to work. If you'll recall, in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it up actually quite nicely into two different parts. The first part of chapter 2 speaks of the believer's new position in Christ Jesus. The believer's new independent new position in Christ Jesus. And when we studied that section, we said there's really a key concept or a key idea in this first 10 verses. Remember what that key concept or idea was? Anybody? Grace. Exactly. Thank you. And, um, and then we said... <laughs> Remember what the key concept was? What is it? Grace. Yeah, thank you. And then, then in this, now, now Professor Johnson carefully, he teaches this at the seminary level. He hasn't been here, you know, throughout the, the entirety of this, and you're embarrassing the heck out of me. What's the key concept in the first ten verses? The grace. Thank you very much. And then in, this, in, in verses 11 and following, Paul moves on to our position in Christ corporately. Our position in Christ corporately. And there are two key concepts in this second portion Love and unity. And you, without love, there's not going to be unity. And then there's the, without true and genuine love, there's not going to be unity. So that's, that's where we are in terms of chapter 2. And the last half of chapter 2 is divided up into, into three different parts. The first part we've already studied. That's the fact of the union between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ, verses 11 through 13. We're currently in the process of studying the explanation of that union in verses 14 through 18. And then finally in verses 19 through 22, the consequences of that union. Since it's, since it's been a little bit of time since we were in verses 11 through 13, I'd like to read 11 through, thir- I'd like to read 11 through 18 to kind of get us all on the same page where we are. We will not get to verse 18 tonight. But uh, let's just at least read these to get, make sure we're all on the same page. Paul says, therefore, remember that formerly you... The Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And remember that word, uncircumcision, is kind of a a bad word. It wasn't a compliment in any way. Therefore, uh, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called this bad word, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were, at at, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We saw in, in these first verses that, that our priority in life must be Jesus Christ. That's where it all starts. Gentile believers are in Him. Not because of any particular merit on their part. Jewish believers are in Him, not because of any particular merit on their part. It's by grace through faith.
difference whether you're Jewish or whether you're a Gentile. Or we could take it into today's economy, today's culture. It's by grace through faith, whether your skin color is black or whether your skin color is white or brown or any shade in between. It's by grace through faith, whether you're male or female. It's by grace through faith, no matter what your economic situation is. We're all in him, not because of any particular merit on our part. So the common denominator between whatever race is in him, whatever the, 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 the gender is in him, whatever the economic situation is in him, the common factor is him. The common factor is Jesus Christ, and that's where our focus should be. That's where our priority should be. We're in him. And if there's to be unity in the body of Christ, and that's what Paul here is calling for, not just in the last part of chapter 2, but really he's making the case throughout the last part of the whole, the whole last part of the letter. If we are to have unity, we have to remember that we're in him. The first emphasis, the first emphasis must not be on us. It's got to be on him. You can tell when your spiritual life is running amok, when your spiritual life has run off into the ditch, when all your thoughts are continually on yourself. That's when you know something has gone wrong in your spiritual life. When it's always just me, me, me. Whether it's me, me, me with relationship to one of my friends, whether it's me, me, me with relationship to, say, somebody that's sitting next to me in church. I don't like what they're doing. Why? Because they're bothering me. Or whether it's me, me, me with regard to my relationship with my Creator. That's very important. Where it's me instead of Him. All those things diminish love and make unity impossible in this church. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we've, we've just, we took a little bit of a look at this term, blood of Christ. And we see that this term is a pregnant verbal symbol for the entirety of the saving work of Christ on the cross. It cost God dearly to bring us into his family. And that's something that we should remember when we encounter what, quite frankly, are fairly petty things. We need to remember the price that was paid to bring us into God's family was severe. And just like Peter will do in 1 Peter, Paul brings us back to that. I call that the apostolic response. When he wants to get our attention, he reminds us of the price that was paid for our salvation so that we could be a part of this family in the first place. Now, in verses 14 through 18, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make, in order that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them in, in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And we won't get to that last portion until I get back from India. But in the meantime, we took a look at the word peace. You recall that? That's a key word. You, you, remember, you should hear how many times that word is used in this, in this verses 14 through 18. The idea of peace is an important one. In its broadest sense, this Greek term, irene, this Greek term means well-being or a general sense of well-being. But in this context, it means a lack of hostility and, and a mutual acceptance between those who were hostile or appeared to be hostile. So that's a key idea. That's something that's extremely important for us in our world today where nobody seems to know what love is. Somebody asked me a definition. What's your, defi- somebody asked me, what's your definition of love? 
you know what my first response to that is? You have to ask. We have some complete first responses. There are some concepts that, that we, I think we have innate knowledge of. I'm not trying to get all Eastern on you, but I think there are some things that, that we're almost born with an innate knowledge of what love is, or at least we know what it's not. And unfortunately, sometimes people are treated with, with anything but love in their early years of life, and so they grow up, and it almost seems as though they don't lo- know what love is. But, but I've always been a little shy about having to, de- to define the term. But, but we realize that, that love is not just a lack of hostility. Any husband and wife will, will tell you that. Any boyfriend and girlfriend can tell you that. Love is more than just indifference. Love is not apathy. Love is not completely devoid of emotion. Now, now love is not completely emotional. There, there's more to it than that. It's sometimes people will define love as, as willing the highest good for another person. And I suppose that's probably a, a pretty decent definition. But love is more than just a lack of hostility. Love is mutual acceptance, at least in the Christian realm. So what Paul, what Paul and the Holy Spirit through Paul is calling us to do is not simply to, to not hate each other. I wish it were so. It would be so much easier on all of us if we could just indifferently ignore the Christians that we don't like. Somebody's in your church, you don't like them, just don't speak to them. Just ignore them. No, that's not what this means. That's not love. That's indifference, that's apathy, but it's not love. Any married couple is going to tell you that. There are, there are some times when people can be living together in the same house, they can be eating at the same table, they can watch the same movies, they can go out with the same group of friends, and they are legally married. And something's wrong. And there may not be an open lack of hostility. But we wouldn't say that there's love. Indifference may be acceptable sometimes, but it's not love. Love is a mutual acceptance. There's something something special to love. There's there's more than just a lack of hostility. I hope you see the difference. I hope you see a difference between that and that. I do. You see, this is what's required. And I'm not saying one has to get physical and Go up down to the front when the song leader tells you to greet the person next to you. You don't have to go plant a kiss on them or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not saying you get sloppy with something like this. That's not the point. But I hope you recognize the difference. I think most normal people can recognize the difference between that and that. Can we not? We recognize it just through a visual image. We really don't have to even say anything about it. Because in our hearts we know that's the kind of thing God's calling us to do with other members who are in the body of Christ. And this concept is key. I mean, it is key. You have to have love before you can have unity. So in the second part of Ephesians, the the idea of love, of course, is about peace. It's like that that too. But love and and unity are are a commingled concept. You really don't have one without the other. Now, granted, which I know this is what you might be thinking, how does this thing play out? How can this work out in practical terms? Well, I will grant you that one's emotional connection, one's emotional connection, will certainly be stronger with some believers than it will with others. I recognize that. God recognizes that. Some people you just know better than others. You know what I'm saying? Some people are just easier to love than other people. I know that comes as a shock to you, doesn't it? At least a couple of you are just about ready to fall in your spirit. Some people are a little 
easier to love something, which means it can be a little harder to love. We must guard, we must guard, though, against allowing a less than emotional relationship, which is one thing. A less than emotional relationship. There may be mutual acceptance, but maybe a less than emotional relationship. We need to guard against that morphing into indifference in an apathetic relationship with someone. Do you see the difference? It might seem like splitting hairs, but when it comes to unity in the body of Christ, just a lack of hostility is not going to get it done. There's got to be a mutual acceptance. And grant, I grant you, there will be different degrees of emotional intensity. You're not going to have the same form of emotional intensity towards say, one of your friends as you do towards your friends. So we recognize that, don't we? You're not going to have the same emotional intensity towards, say, somebody that you've never met as you do one of your close friends. But if they're a member of the body of Christ, you have something in common with them. You share a common burden and a common life. You also share a common God. And you will be with other believers in heaven forever. So this is an extremely important passage. So the idea is not to gin up a phony emotional connection with every believer that you meet. That would be incredibly disingenuous. But the idea is to recognize my fellow believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as one for whom Christ also died. I love it when the apostle used that phrase. One for whom Christ also died. He didn't just die for you. He died for you. But he didn't just die for you. He didn't just die for the elect either. I think that hurts the idea of love quite sometimes. He died for everybody. Efficient only for those who believe. We have, we've talked about that many, many times. But, but the idea is to recognize that everybody that is in the body of Christ, that's a person that Christ also died for. It's a person that, just like me, was saved by grace through faith. Not saved by works. Not that some people were any better and they got in and, and then you got in by grace through faith. We were all saved by grace through faith. And therefore, we are all part of the same family. Functional, to use modern terminology, but we kind of think the body of Christ would be that way too. So, of course, we have fragmented nuclear families, and we also have people bringing in and have a fragmented church family. If I am indwelt by the same Spirit, and if I am not preaching the ministry of that Spirit at any given moment, then I'm not going to have to force the Spirit. You understand where I'm going with this? If I am indwelt by God's Holy Spirit and I am sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and I'm not quenching the Holy Spirit, then it's not like I have to gin up emotion when I run into another believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I truly am indwelt with the Holy Spirit and I'm letting the Spirit lead me, it's going to come naturally. And you don't have to try to force it. That's the problem I have. And I've been in churches where this this has happened where oftentimes it's music leaders, sometimes it's the pastor himself that will get up and attempt to gin up emotion. wouldn't have heard of it, but I just happened to go to a sermon. They hardly ever do that, but I was just visiting there one time, and I had a few excused, a little bit of time. I walked down the street. I said, okay, I'm going to the first church, the first meeting, somewhat orthodox. So I went in. Sunday morning, I had fairly well-dressed, but I wasn't well-dressed enough for this church. It's a very, very wealthy church. The song leader, I mean, nobody speaks to me. Nobody spoke a word. Which is, by the way, let's be careful when 
I don't think it's in our best interest to go over all five of those, but I would like to, to kind of give you an idea of what, what I believe the, the correct answer is, and then uh, I'm going to make the application from that. Who they broke loose in one and broke down the barrier. There's one word up there I think that you would, would be able to, to kind of understand. This word right here is just like a kind of a squiggly little letter. That, that word is pronounced fragmu. Fragmu is fragmosis. Does that sound like an English word? Just a little bit to you? Yes, and I think, you know, that, now this word doesn't mean fragmented, but it kind of has that idea that, that, that instead of unity being present, there was something that was not unified here. But it, it's, it could certainly be translated broke down the barrier of the dividing wall or something similar to that. Your Bibles may have something a, a little bit different. But the idea is that is it's even more important than that is, is that is the word lusos. Lusos is another participle, and it means destroy them. Now, we're going to see a contrast here. We studied this last week, but I want to make sure we went back and, and that we got it real well. By what Jesus Christ did on the cross, this division between Jew and Gentile was destroyed. The division, the enmity, is destroyed. Now we're going to see another word in a minute. It's going to be translated having nullified or rendered an opposite. The law. Jesus doesn't destroy the law. He destroys this dividing barrier by having, through his death, rendered an operative the Mosaic law. I hope you see the distinction. We don't want to say that Jesus destroyed the law. That would contradict his own words. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. You see where we're going with that? He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And this is a, an important concept. Also last week, we studied this idea of enmity. And the reason I brought this for you today is I want to, to give you an idea of where this word enmity fit into the sentence. Now, you don't have to speak Greek at all. You don't have to read Greek at all. I just want you to get a visual of where it is in this thought pattern. You see, is, is it at the beginning, the middle, or the end? Right in the middle. It's central. And it comes right after, in the Greek text, comes right after this idea of the dividing wall. And in the in Greek, we, we say that this is an apposition. It, it, it comes right next to it, and it's referring to what happened before. It means generation. The enmity, this hostility, the, which makes up this dividing wall, is... That has, been, that has been undone by the death of Christ on the cross, is actually going to be the law focus of our life. You say, how in the world could the law separate? He wasn't supposed to separate them. Well, you could make a case in some senses that the law was to make Israel a peculiar people unto himself. We, I went through ten things last week from Dr. Pentecost, ten principles. But the idea of the law was, was originally not to to divide, but, but actually to bring Jews and Gentiles together. It didn't work that way because rather than using the law to witness the Gentiles, the Jews too often used the law as an excuse to look down their noses at their Gentile neighbors, who they considered class sinners. And that inevitably led to antagonism on both sides of the aisle. Has that ever happened to you? Where somebody, somebody just kind of started looking their nose down at you? Now, they don't even have to consider them a class sinner. All they got to do is just look their nose down at me. And, and I, I don't know if I'm going to but look your nose down at me and consider me a class sinner. Well, I'm going to look back at you and say, who the heck do you think you are? And that's exactly what's happening. Now, they're doing it through an improper use of the Mosaic Law, but in, in most cases. But there are also some 
something this isn't your picture. Think back to verse 11. And remember what Paul reminds these Gentile believers that was happening to them before they came to Christ. They were believing in the early days of Christianity. They were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. In this case, I don't think the so-called circumcision was very evil. But there was this hostility, and it all just seemed to center around this aspect of the so-called circumcision. And if there ever was something that was abused, it was that portion of the law. And of course, that goes back to the prior patriarchs from way back Abraham like everywhere Paul went, that this one aspect of the Mosaic Law was considered abused. Now the last phrase is translated in the New American Standard uh, something like this, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained, although I don't have the, yeah, you have law and, and commandments um, contained in the ordinance. There is, um, there is one word here that you can, if you get an English word out of the Hebrew, it is often obscene. This is probably where we get the word dogmatic. We got to stop reading the latest views too, so we don't want to do too much uh, transporting. But by abolishing in his flesh, the word in his flesh, the phrase in his flesh, we said last time, and I hope this is fresh in your memory, refers back to the idea of the blood of Christ. And Paul can't hardly help it. He wants us to make sure that the death Christ died on the cross, which rendered the Mosaic Law inoperative, it's not a unique concept in the text, it renders the Mosaic Law inoperative. The death Christ died rendered inoperative. The great price was paid. It was for everybody's sin. And so it's calling us, calling us to live in peace. We ought to remember this. There's one last thing I want to bring attention to, and then I'll get off of this particular part. There are two participles here that I, I can't leave without making sure we have the distinction. The first one, which is right here, that word means to destroy. He, he destroyed the hostility. He destroyed the dividing wall. And he destroyed it by rendering the Mosaic Law inoperative. The second word doesn't mean to destroy. It means to eradicate or render inoperative. There's a subtle difference, but I think it's a big difference. He translated um, that he destroyed the law. He put to death the law. It, it didn't happen that way. But he, could, he didn't come to destroy the law. He put to death the law. After his death, the law, all of it, all of it was rendered inoperative. It wasn't rendered bad. It wasn't rendered evil. Paul says, he says, well, I'm not under law because I'm under the law of man. I know him. By that law, God wrote it. Of course, it's not. The purposes of the Mosaic law were not fulfilled at that point. So he fulfilled the law. The source of the division between Jew and Gentile had been rendered inoperative. Now both groups are one. And that being the case, there's no justification for anyone who comes to faith today. You may say, well, amen, brother, to that. I've got no problem with my Jewish friends who come to Christ. Okay, well, how about your friends who sin come to Christ? different cultural issues there, and I may not worship the same way as somebody else in another culture, but I worship the same Lord. So there, there are some things where we need to see a bigger picture, and I'm not against doctrinal distinctions. Please, 
hope you know the joke. But there are there are some things that need to be set aside in favor of resonating with the worship of the same Lord. So we worship we worship if you're in Christ, you worship the same Lord regardless of what sin you commit. You worship the same Lord regardless of what you haven't sinned. You worship the same Lord regardless of your sins. That's Paul's point when when Paul says to Timothy, Yes, but as to saints, he says we need to keep doctrine. First and foremost, we have to realize we're all the same sinner. And this is not going to make you more happy. Okay? I'm not going to make you more happy. But I do have to recognize that Paul communicates that we are above being more than just a bad person. Now, the idea that we're not under the name of the law is not new in the New Testament. Some people have believed that we are under the name of the law and that we still restrict our actions. And that's a limitation for us. Perhaps for spiritually, some of not really believe we're saved and therefore the law, but Paul has said in other places that the law has been rendered inoperative. So to hear he's not under the name of the law brings up a little more trouble. Verses 1 through 4, but we turn this way. Galatians chapter 2, 19, and Galatians chapter 3, 19. Christ, and this is not the unique here. This is not the okay that Paul is giving us. Okay. Uh, briefly, in the final phrase of verse 15, and, and actually relevant to verse 16, Paul brings up two purposes. Again, stress the concept of peace. He does this in the last part of 15 and on into 16. And since we've covered the concept now for almost three weeks in a row now, I think we'll be able to look at these verses and you'll be able to get it very quickly in the time that we have left. That, or in order that, in himself, again, he's pointing back to the death that he died. In himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Again, not just a lack of hostility, but a mutual acceptance. And the second purpose for us, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having uh, by it having put to death sin. Here's the bottom line: there's no excuse, there's no reason, there's no rationale for believers in the body of Christ to function with the same sin that we all do. And the objection that that person is really difficult to love is not a valid. Idea is not that we love those who are unlovable and we reject those who are lovable. It's what Paul is calling us to do is a very high standard. Everybody ever say amen to that? It's a very high standard, but it cannot be applied to ourselves. It has to be applied to the world around us. The only way you're going to be able to do what this passage is calling you to do is follow the lead of Christ Jesus. We will hear from God. We are never going to accomplish also remember back in Galatians, Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh are in the deeds of the flesh are against the flesh. And that's where that comes from. We're functioning under the flesh. We're struggling to get things done. We're going to function in a way where there's hostility and where there's a lack of love. simply avoiding hostility 